answer me, you bastard. Speak now, or stick my foot up in your wazoo, cause we got the jatodo. To study is why we were sent here to the zoo. Captain Gooch-Gobber said so, and I do too. There are dissections of emus, sections, cross-sections, different directions, humans bump in the dark, it's true. Drug consumption, the marma junctions, assumptions, forming by gumptions. Humans love the dark, they'll fuck you too. There is poetry, philosophy, sodomy, and agony. Humans pop in the dark, they will pump you. Sensation after correlation, and correlation after sensation. Humans pump in the dark, here's how they grow. Second time we record the section two for a biography of uh, George Berkeley, who I really don't want to talk about anymore. Last time we recorded, last week, when I thought we had it all saved and made sure triple time, triple time that it was saved. Had no problems before that, but for some reason I felt like I needed to check it three times to see if it's saved. Made sure it was saved. Found out today it was not saved. After we had a fuck up from saving on today's episode, which would have been, what was it? Would have been what? 118? Yeah, it would have been 118. Now we're all the way back to this bullshit episode. This um, dumb, hairy ape named George Berkeley. We're going back to the marriage of Jerk. Of Jerk and Berkeley. Yeah, Jerk and Berkeley. We might as well call him that. Might as well call him Fuzzy Face. Um, George Berkeley, yeah, and Ann Forster married. Okay, I misread Ann's last name. That doesn't really matter because it's just some dialect of your species here with George and Ann. Um, yeah, it's particularly interesting because on the previous saving of the homo's biography that we covered, Antonio Valsalva married at the age of 43 and so did George Berkeley. That was the first marriage that we publicly know of these two sapiens of the homo. Currently, we're covering George Berkeley, which I've already mentioned, but I wanted to make sure because I know a lot of humans have a hard time following anything whatsoever because their brains have been scrambled by their social medias and their quote-unquote smartphones, which do nothing but induce synthetic stimulus to um, you know, get people to feel like they've got a dopamine release which is neurotransmitter to make you think that you have successfully successfully done something, uh, accomplished something, which in history has proven to be difficult and taken many of hours to do. But you can get that within moments on your smartphone, which hinders your short-term memory to become a lot less because you require less memory to get anything successful. And that is exactly what's happening with your short-term potentiation with your memory. And that is exactly why you have a hard time following me right now. It has nothing to do with how intelligible I sound or not. Um, yeah, Anne was born in or near the year of 1707 with her father, John Forrester, we already mentioned in the previous episode. And as if that was deleted too by the Microsoft program. 
But her mother was unknown. What a surprise. No wonder why there's a lot of social problems in your feeble society. So, if Anne was born in 1707, she would have been 21 when she married the crusty old 41 or 43-year-old George Berkeley, who is the stereotypical, horny, self-centered male saving of the homo who shouldn't have even actually reproduced. In my mind, George Berkeley was a waste of uh, anything. But that's just me. Britannica was the only source I found for the narrative that Anne supported all of George's opinions. But that would not surprise me whatsoever because women were completely expected to uphold and obey their husbands. That's a good sapien of the homo. Obey your husband because that is the strong one. And if you don't obey them, you are going to get physically harmed. And that's scary for everybody. After this marriage in 1728, on the 6th of May, wait, after the marriage in 1728, on the 6th of May of 1729, Anne Forrester popped out her first baby to George Berkeley, born in Rhode Island of North American, which was a North American colony of Britain. Because George Berkeley thought he was going to put one over on the poor Native Americans. So we're... We were, was George Berkeley, finding out that his political support for his money that was, in his mind, supposed to be sent to Bermuda so he could educate the local yokels with their sophisticated, Eurocentric, pompous propaganda of Bermuda. Well, he found out of this disturbing news that his poor situation was not going to be funded. So he moved to London in 1731 after his three-year stint in America. When in London, he realized that many of his words were not being taken seriously by many in London because the terrible freethinkers were overwhelming. For instance, George's theory on vision was criticized by an unnamed writer, and I searched for the name of the writer, uh, who worked, though, for... Yeah, the who he worked for was mentioned, by the way. That's very nice. Um, that's another thing I love about humanity. They they like to post up who that person worked for more than the person. The person doesn't even matter, even though the person did all the work. Anyways, this unnamed writer worked for the Daily Post Boy. Specific critique was elusive for me. Yeah, that was another detail they didn't mention. Imagine that. Britannica or Encyclopedia.com forgetting to mention details. Yeah. Details don't matter at all, even though the details completely matter. That's how the outcome deviates from another situation that's very similar to details. But anyways, George responded with a revised version in which he, we see is light rather than the physical objects. And prior, it sounded like nothing really existed, and it was really your mind making it all up, and boobity doobity doop. But those things are still there, even though you're not seeing them, but they're only there because you see them. Starting to make no sense whatsoever, but it doesn't really matter because it's humanity, and it's all going to be doomed anyways. The unnamed writer also praised, though, George Berkeley, too, for another work called El Cifron, which is a tall tale sign 
that the unnamed writer should be remained unnamed. Because they really don't matter. Because if you know anything about El Saffron, um, in short, it was written in Newport, published in 1732, bashing the evil deists with their free-thinking quote-unquote probability, probably from the evil bowels of Satan himself. This is something I like, because the more I find out when people don't like you, it's probably a good sign. People are pretty poor at judging character, I tell you that much. This was all in defense of the great holy macaroniness in Christendom. It also included the functionality of words and religious disputation, which doesn't really mean much to me. But if you want to look into this hoopla about functionality of words, one might ask, oh, I know you probably do. I know someone, someone out there would probably want to know about the functionality of words in religion, which makes less sense the more I say it. Because religion doesn't really function as anything other than a pacifier for a person who doesn't realize that nothing is safe. Nothing is ever secure. That's one thing that COVID really caused. It caused a realization for many people who were easily blinded by their masters to realize that life is not safe. And once life's falsehood that the government put upon you was blown open by a simple virus and made you realize life's not safe, you cowered and hid inside of your house you were afraid to say hi to your neighbor because of a virus. Meanwhile, flu's killing millions of people as well. The problem with humanity is that you focus on ethos as if it's correct, as if authority has been correct. But every single instance in history of mankind, the newer generations prove how their authorities were wrong over and over again. It will never stop until humanity kills itself because humanity is an insane species of ape that mutated from some test subjects from the reptilian species. You're like a lab rat with well-endowed telomeres that are so long that you're prone to every single disease of cancer that known, that's known to mankind. So I found source for to talk about this bullshit of functionality of words in religion. In this source, they talked about the power of words. For they aren't just how you describe the world, but also impact how you see the world. Speaking of which, one major point given by George Berkeley is seen as a build-off of an older sapien of the homo named John Toland. When Toland disputed Locke's assertion that experience makes the thoughts, Toland argued that there is no specific experience to words like substance or trinity or divinity and George Berkeley would go even further to say words like God and grace. Although you would not know the words God, grace, substance, trinity, or divinity without an experience in the first place. So this whole argument is nullified. Voided, actually. This whole argument is voided. Just like my son. Yes. Just like your son. I'm sorry my species kidnapped you and made you give birth to 
a test subject who was vulnerable to being brainwashed like he was. That's okay. We still love him. It's almost like it was a complete replica of a human. The well, only difference is he's connected to our species in some weird way. You have to understand that we're all different and we're all on our own journeys. And although we might not all see it the way you and me do, that it's okay. It's all okay. Everything becomes a big black hole in the end of the universe anyways. Recycles itself. Their stupidity is just less conscious than ours. And there's a higher one than ours. And those people and those beings are like, oh, my God, they're so dumb. And we're like, but we, we're actually like in the middle. I wouldn't think anybody higher than me would say you're stupid. They wouldn't say you're stupid. You're less conscious than they are. There are levels. And some people, they're meant to be here on this earth to be blind their whole life. Because the life they led before that was probably one where they treated people awfully shitty. We are all one. Yeah, I don't feel very one. And that's okay. It's only today. Yeah, the correlations people have with these use of words will ultimately impact the way people view situations and how they speak about situations and how they think of others who use their words regarding these same situations. Something that makes sense to you today might not make sense to you in a month. Based off experience. Or off of knowing different. Because in this stupid human mind, you have ever-changing chemical reactions that go with your emotions and also impact how you reflect upon experiences. And even though the mind does make up our experiences, one can't help but to note that the experiences prior to the impact of your new experiences aren't impacting your new experiences, meaning that it is completely circular causality, which is why philosophy books have circular thought in them, because you you have this conundrum where... Yes, what you look at and how you experience it is completely designed by how you sense it, which is also a part of your experience in itself because how you experience anything is impacted by your previous experiences. It's uh, pretty funny how everything goes in a double helix downward spiral, including your very DNA. As for other critiques upon George's assumed works, we have El Sephron being criticized with satire by some sapien of the homo named Bernard de Manderbel. These moments most certainly had words in George's mind that had him picking more fights because, of course, anybody who's been in the experience of having any kind of work they've put into anything that they took seriously being mocked 
with something like satire, you have a defensive mode that gets propped up in the primitive human mind. If only he understood the power of words and the power on how words have on how he experiences reality. Maybe George Berkeley. Oh, wait, we just covered how he's supposed to know how words impact his own experience on reality. That's kind of interesting. It's, it's pretty common. You know, you will always know something and know many of facts, but will neglect to pull out those facts in your metaphysical tool belt or your metaphorical tool belt that you know you have in certain moments. And then there's always some other human coming up to you to point out, hey, did you know about this? I bet you didn't know about this because if you knew about it, I'm pretty sure you would apply it. But like, no, no, I'm human. So therefore, yes, I do know about that. I neglected to remember it because I'm an emotional human being. That's, that's all it is. If everybody just understood that, maybe there'd be a lot less corrections. I don't know. It's a little frustrating sometimes, you know, living as a human. In 1734, though, Berkeley had another published work called Analyst, or a disclosure or a discourse addressed to the infidel mathematician. This was some bastardization use of math to prove God existed or something like that. A human that would work as a physician and scientist at Cambridge named James Jern, along with another human named John Walton Dublin, and then another human that was noted for being from Scotland with uh, the credits of working as a mathematician called Colin McLaurin. They all had something to say about George Berkeley. And in 1735, George Berkeley had something to say back, specifically to James Jern, with a satire. Yeah, that's kind of familiar. Kind of like the sting that George Berkeley had received earlier of another satirical work. I guess he liked it. I guess he liked being mocked, even though they... Even though everybody knows that's not the fucking case. You know, George Berkeley did not like being mocked. But George Berkeley, being the emotional ape that he is, because he's human, responded with something that he picked up, which was an offensive, satirical work of his own. He's like, well, I don't like the, you know, how I felt by it, but I'm going to give someone else the shit stick that I received and act like I'm better than that person, just like the person did before me. This satirical work was called A Defense of Three of Free Thinking in Mathematics, which is, as one could assume, right off the bat, well, math has many rules, and you're saying free thinking in mathematics. Sounds kind of insane. You might as well say 2 plus 2 equals infinity because if you have two rabbits together with two other rabbits, you're going to have an infinite number of rabbits because they fuck like crazy. That's a crazy amount of rabbits. Which is actually kind of, um, in you know, 
even though I wrote that in an idea that it would be a complete joke, it's quite true. Mathematics is abstract, right? It's absolutely true. It is true. If you have um two males and two female rabbits, oh, you get make a, some babies. A lot of jiggly juice. Maybe some extra babies you know, from you, extra yeah, juice. You a little extra babbits. I mean you and someone else. I'll kill that bitch. Yeah, you kill that bitch. I Infinity. will. Infinity. I will. But anyways, talking about mathematics, you got two plus two in abstract form. Yes. It's just four, right? My cock. But in defense, in defense of free thinking, which is what Gork Mouth is all for, because I don't really care for, um, how do you say, conservative thought. Uh, I think uh, conservatism and uh, liberalism is. Uh, there are definitions that are not taken seriously, and. Um, they don't mean what they uh, technically mean anymore and are meaning something that makes no sense in politics right now. But technically, um, in abstract form, in math, 2 plus 2 is 4. But in reality, 2 plus 2 can equal all sorts of numbers. It yeah. can? Yeah. If you have two men who are married... To two women, you can equate to any kind of number within a reasonable range, depending upon the time that they are together. So, I mean, you have, you can have anywhere from zero after the two couples are dead, or you can have four offspring from one set and six offspring from another set. And it equates to 10 plus the 4 that were there, which would be 14. So, like, in abstracts are completely lacking in all the details of the situations. And that's even funnier because humans like to use math to prove their arguments in abstracts. But in reality, nothing is really abstract. It's right here in circumstantial. And that's a lot of... A lot of the problems with the human mind is it doesn't grasp the fact that even though you have abstracts like math, which can make sense in theory, are quite feeble-minded when it comes to the complexity of reality. And uh, that's just one thing I think I'm here sent for, is to point that very simple fact out. That's a good fact. Yeah, and which is kind of interesting because it came from me talking about George Berkeley, a highly religious Catholic, trying to defend the mental mind control that the Catholic Church had had up until this point of free thinking. So, now we have some guy named Johnson. Yeah, let's talk about this big old Johnson. Yes. Oh, He's wait, wait, wait. Big Before we talk about Johnson. Chubby Johnson. I know you like putting your foot on my nipple right now, mm. but... um. Yeah, before we talk about Johnson, though, okay, your foot's on my back, okay. So, in this satirical book that George Berkeley wrote, addressing the one named, Thank you, little child, go away to the basement. So, anyways, this uh, book that George Berkeley wrote, responding to James Jern and satire, had an appendix which, inside, he explained why he didn't reply to the one named Walton Will the one with the last name Walton. The other sapiens of the homo I mentioned weren't even mentioned at all in the paragraph proceeding. The, their names 
So kind of confuses me why their names were even brought up. Like, where's their address? The address is not there at all. Then why'd you address it? I don't know. But anyways, we're gonna. They weren't wearing a dress. No, they were. They were nude. That's weird. Yeah, which would explain why I'm gonna talk about some guy named Johnson. Oh well, you know. He acted like a Johnson. Oh, Johnsons are great in the nude. Well, yeah, unless if you're this Johnson, because he pointed out uh, that a rock that was in front of him, he said, um, after he kicked it a bunch of times, that he refuted its existence. And the argument was that since he refuted its existence, it shouldn't uh, be there anymore, and he should kick right through it, and it should just disappear into the air. Because... George Berkeley thought that the rock was only there because you experience it. And you only experience it because your mind makes it there. Which is actually true. But we can get into an argument back and forth. And I, I see both sides. So this mean old dookie head named Johnson. <laughs> so this mean old dookie head named Johnson. That's Better this yeah. big old juki head. He was. You see how that works? He was a poopy face. The angels they just come down and they're like, "Hey man, hey, we just love call you. A head. We love you. Just, just, just it's call okay. a dookie head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, what Johnson basically was stating was what I would say is straw man argument. It's a false representation of an argument proposed by Berkeley that wasn't really what Berkeley was trying to say. All Berkeley was trying to say that the rock is there because that's how your mind makes it there. And it's not stating that the rock is not there, but the experience of the rock is clearly made up by your mind, which is true. I mean, the argument in philosophy is calling that George Berkeley and others who agree with him, including yours truly, me, uh, an unrealist or an anti-realist, which is it's in itself an ad hominem statement because you're claiming that I don't think that anything's real when, in, in fact, I agree everything's real. Don't get me wrong, but your reality and my reality are completely different. The fact is, is that my experience is completely made up by my own reception and my own sensation based off of the environment that I'm surrounded by. But uh, it's just as real as yours, which may be different. You cannot tell me that my experience is the same as yours because the intricacies involved in your neurological connections and your reception of the energies is completely different. And not to even mention, even if you and I were sitting here side by side and I was staring at this wall that I'm looking at right now at this mandala that's green and white, you would physically be at a completely different angle. It's, it's so beautiful. It is a different angle you would be experiencing it from. Therefore, you wouldn't even have the same experience as I am, which is a theme that I've stated many times in this podcast. Uh. Yeah, so... Let me let's continue, okay? I mean, this is a, quite a story here. Where I got this information regarding Johnson being a Johnson, mm -hmm. 
There was another sapien of the homo named Boswell. Well, last name was Boswell. In Source 4, that was... Um, it, it seemed like Boswell and Johnson were like acquaintances or fellow members of some society where George Berkeley would speak at some conference of some kind. Wherever sapiens of a homo go to talk about things they disagree or agree upon or debate or what have you, it doesn't even matter because uh, what really matters is the validity of any argument, not so much all the other minutia. But Boswell basically said that even though that both he and Johnson would easily refuse to believe that the world isn't as Berkeley would put it, they failed mentally to be able to prove that George Berkeley was wrong because he wasn't wrong. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's 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 quite literally the same concept as Light is always light, right? Yeah, it's your perception. But but if you put the same light, the same everything the same, but if you just put a crystal prism right there to the beam of light at the right angle, the light will get split up into all these different vibrations. Yeah, the colors. The you know the Pink Floyd, the wall, oh. or the you know Dark Side of the Moon, or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, the wall. No, I think it was Dark Side of the Moon. Are we gonna argue about this one? <sighs> Thank you for looking it up. It's the album, the wall. Mm, no, I think the wall has something to do with uh, robots and walls. I think the Dark Side of the Moon is all about the prism with the separation of oh, light. It's it's the wall. Literally, the Pink Floyd, the wall, but I... No. No. No, the album cover, look. Pink Floyd, the wall is the wall. Hold on. The wall album cover is... No, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, so the moon, Dark Side of the Moon, is what I'm talking about. The prism... Actually, Isaac Newton used to argue that uh, light is all of one thing, but many different variants of it. White light is. And all the different variants are the colors that we see, right? Yes. It's it's fragments. Oh, my God. I could sell my album for over $160 right now on eBay. Someone's selling it for $162.64 on eBay. And it looks like poor condition of my album. I'm not going to sell it. Fuck that. So, 1734, Berkeley was a bishop of Cleone. Or, yeah, that's enough of the arguments, okay, between Berkeley and some beef he had with other people because really what matters is what we're talking about him for. In 1734, Berkeley was a bishop of Cleone. He was credited for helping the Trinity College flourish with a newly completed library and a Greek font added to their newly furnished printing house there as well. George and Anne Berkeley's family is claimed to have had two sons born prior to this move over here to Cleone, while Source 6 seems to not make up their minds and their, uh, their 
opening paragraph of the article. Um, because in their article, I've in the first paragraph, I found a claim of that three out of four children born of their family were born in Cleone, and in, shortly after, in the same paragraph, it mentions all seven of George Berkeley's children predeceased him. So his genetics did not really move on from himself. So uh, that source is sketchy and uh, unintelligible, at least, at the very least, to me. It's kind of sad. Though George and Anne Berkeley weren't successful at having offspring to live past their own lifetime, they were successful at making babies. I have a suspicion that George and Anne might have shaken the devil out of some of these crying children. <laughs> Shaking baby syndrome. We know so, all about it. They might have been very successful at that, but uh, successful at having their children last past childhood, let alone themselves, was a complete and utter failure by George Berkeley and his wife, Anne. At least How many children did they go through? Seven. Seven, even though one of How the sources didn't lived? make up their mind. None of them lived past themselves. What? They lived older than their children. Which actually kind of seems kind of nice. They killed all of their children. I mean, to be honest, that seems kind of nice. No, shut the fuck up. At least the woman. George was good at um, his religious role for the protection from the free-minded humans. He was so successful where he was in Ireland that he took a seat in the House of the Lords in 1737. I imagine that the Lords may have required you to kill all your children before they reached the adult age. Once 1738 blasted George Berkeley in the face, he did what many a human would do. He blasted the blasters, quote-unquote, whose hellfire club now in ruins still can be seen near Dublin. From Source 1, according to the historyofireland.com, Source 5, the Hellfire Club was originally a hunting lodge, rock hard and erected on top of a hill in Ireland near Dublin in 1725. All said to have been created by a human named William Canali of uh, Castletown House, which would explain why he made a castle there. This was short-lived, though, because in 1729, Connolly died. This land in building was then purchased by no name given whatsoever. That's nice. For a young buck or several to go over there and uh, release some tension of some kind. I imagine it's upon themselves or some other female saping them homo. What I find interesting is that Bishop George Berkeley is credited for speaking as if this institution or this building or what have you was in ruins in the year of 1738, but it wasn't until a year of 1750 where there was a fire that led this building being abandoned, according to Source 5. So it kind of has me, if one was more of a cynical mindset, you would see that, um, yeah, it was a conspiracy. 
without any information whatsoever. Why I would say this is because uh, several episodes of ours actually pointed out confirmed conspiracies among the Catholic Church, which George Berkeley belonged to. And that's how I would start off my argument towards a conspiratorial mindset regarding George Berkeley and his statement, which could have also been complete coincidence, I guess, if you imagine it so. But uh, given the fact that George Berkeley was hardcore set into defending the Catholic Church and their power over people's minds, including with philosophy and free thinking, I have no doubt that groups would be snuffed out by the church, especially when there's getting a, they're getting a lot of, you know, kickbacks or, you know, a lot of fightbacks from people who are saying, fuck you, I know better than you. But uh, in academia right now, there's a little ruffling of the feathers where uh, they get mad at George selling tar water for a disease. It's kind of interesting because everywhere I've looked, I didn't find an actual disease, even though they mentioned several diseases, or even though several sources mentioned some sort of epidemic. Now, what I found was like um, from the years of 1739 to 1740, there was a disease worsened by a chain that was caused by extreme cold, which resulted in poor yield of agriculture and starvation and even more deaths, I did not find any specific epidemics. And even when I looked for uh, an epidemic on some, like, Irish epidemic website, there was no mention of this year or any type of epidemics whatsoever, which had me confused. I don't know what's going on there, but I got a quote regarding the tar water. You want to hear about the tar water woman? Absolutely. Why would I not want to hear about the tar water? The tar water sounds so fascinating. It doesn't sound like something really simple like tar and water, right? Yeah, like nasty, fucking disgusting shit. Yes, the tar from my ass. (laughs) So this quote comes from Source 6. I think everybody who's listening would like this. Quote, Could not be brought to take it, end quote. But I'm still quoting source six because I I got lazy. Little wonder that poor child rejected it. Even in Berkeley's improved version, it tastes foul. In Great Expectations, Chapter 2, Charles Dickens portrays his unpleasant character, Mrs. Joe, administering it as a restorative comma punishment for Pip and Mr. Joe. So, Berkeley outlines a number of diseases which he believes Tarwater has successfully treated and describes how he believes the substance assists the body. For example, quote, The particles of tar water are not only warm and active, they are also balsamic and emollient, softening and enriching the sharp and vapid blood and healing the erosions occasioned thereby in the blood vessels and glands, end quote, page 26. Uh, he believes various qualities of tar water mean that it can replace most medicines 
And to be fair, it is safer than mercury. It is not much fun to take, but it might be fun to make. Berkeley notes the, that colder water or less stirring makes the tar water weaker. The converse makes it stronger. It should be, he says, no lighter than French white wine and no darker than Spanish white wine. Checking uh, the dilution using the comparison method while not wasting the open wine is not the worst way to spend an evening. Yeah, I guess drinking wine can make every experience that you have better than the experience before you drink the wine. That's a good note, listener. If you're doing something you don't like, just pop open some wine. Right? Yeah, then maybe you'll like it. Yeah, or maybe you'll at least have some fun with the wine while you do something you don't like. Because sure. Or the wine bottle. Yeah. Well, why? Uh, better yet, why are you doing something you don't like? Like Void says, just stick that wine bottle right up the pussy. I am actually kind of really relieved we're not recording with him right now. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, listener, I want to take this snake, I want to take this steak knife I have and, uh, you know, get collect a sample from him. That's what I want to say. Collect a sample. Although I know it wouldn't be as tasty as this right now. There you have it. A remote treatment for smallpox was used for another disease. I searched uh, Google's Manoogles to find anything on this epidemic and find Daily Squat, but Source 8, which was on epidemics in Ireland, which didn't tell me Daily Squat around for the time period of the 1730s to the early 1740s. The closest, I, the closest disease I found was from the 1650s, without a name at all. The more it seems to me that this disease was not even existent. Only one mentioning it was Britannica. Of course, uh, if there was a disease, it was ex exacerbated by the weather, which impacted agriculture, which impacted nutrition, which impacted ability to fight off infection. I'm not really focusing on this topic. I just wanted to find something, if anything, at all, huh, regarding this disease. But it sounded like it was more of a treatment for a famine. It kind of makes sense. In the odd times and during starvation, people find weird foods to eat. Um, no sources cited for this, but I do know that uh, I have been told... That in Haiti, when the crazy shit had happened and people were starving, they were eating mud pies. Adults making mud pies for everybody. Which is something you would imagine children to make in La La Land while they're making up an existence. But no, this existence was real and people were eating mud to curb their hunger. That's how bad they were starving. And I would imagine tar water would be a great curver for hunger. Kind of like how coffee is for some people, or water in general. But in August 1752, George hooked up with his brother, 
hooked up his brother by giving his brother all his religious duties while he retired in Holywell, on Holywell Street in Oxford with his wife and two living children. And these two living children were the only ones named, which came from the Britannica article, which were George and Julia. Really? George? And Julia. George couldn't have possibly picked a better name for one of his children than George. I'm going to name you after me. That's not, all he knew. Not even George Berkeley. I would have rather name my I would have rather have named my kid Tarwater than my own name. Like Gork. You wouldn't ever name your own son Gork. No. Even if we had a son, you wouldn't name him Gork? Nope. Why? Um there's only one Gork. Maybe Grok. Grok. Oh, I know his name. My name is Gork Mouth. Well, that's fine. As long as you're always discovering who you are. Mm. But if I'm always changing, how can I really be rest assured that I know who I am? Because the more you change into a better person. Why, well, the better subjective. Okay. As long as you're paying attention to what you're doing that affects other people. And you know you're not really trying to hurt anybody else, but you're also trying to do what's best for yourself. That's what matters. And if it does bother somebody else, well, you know what? If it's better for yourself then it's better for yourself. I don't know. There's no good and bad. There's whatever. And we're all all on a journey to be who we're really supposed to be. And I don't know who that's supposed to be this time. That's up to you. Well, on that note, we leave in peace. See you later. Bye-bye. Kick it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.